Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. It speaks to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I was uh, very close with my grandfather when he died back in 2003. And it was the first funeral that I had attended of someone who I was close with. And I think that's a memorable experience that many of us have, that first funeral where you've lost someone dear to you. And so um, as I grew up, my grandfather, he, he took special interest in me. I was a consolation to him of sorts um, for the loss of my grandmother that I never knew. My grandfather's wife died the same year or about the same time that I was born. And so even though my, my grandfather lost his wife, he gained a grandson. I was the first grandson. And so he took special interest in me growing up. And uh, he died when I was 16, and I still miss him today. And another, a number of things struck me about this season in my family's life. I got to watch my father grieve the loss of his father. I got to watch the pastor at this Baptist megachurch take his eyes off of the 900 other members of this congregation to look just at my family and to shepherd us through this season of grief and the funeral arrangements. And I was given some insight into the often unacknowledged mountain of paperwork that a grieving family must complete on the other side of the funeral. Wills and estates and bank accounts, uh, death certificates, cemetery plots, casket and vault bills, goodwill, clothing, donations, the like. And so since that funeral, um, I've been shocked at the amount of sort of uncaring bureaucratic mess that many families have to sort through when a loved one dies. I'm sure many of you here have had a familiar experience with that same sort of difficulty, uh, that it can be a real hard uh, issue to go through and deal with everything that's left behind after a loved one is lost. In our Genesis reading today, you see Abraham is undergoing this particular grievous loss. I mean, you know, it's, it's not that she was a spring chicken, but at the young ripe age of 127 years old, Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies, and Abraham is left a widower. And you'll remember that Abraham lived a nomadic lifestyle, right? He was someone who lived in tents, and so he had this massive herd of livestock, and he would simply take that livestock to wherever the pastures were green and the water was fresh. And so he's not someone that really sat himself down um, to say, you know, hey, this is my, my home base, and maybe I should um, prepare a grave for my wife before she dies. It just so happens that Abraham is near the city of Hebron when Sarah dies. And so he goes through the, the, the important ritual mourning that takes place. Um, in our world, um, it, we think the opposite of the ancient world. We think that mourning should be private, sort of done behind the scenes. Um, and so we don't really, we try not to cry at funerals. We try not to make a big scene. 
that was considered to be um, rude in the ancient world. If you really loved someone, then when you were at a funeral and, and someone close to you died, you, you, know, you wore black and you cried. And, and you cried a whole bunch and you did it publicly. And people came and they cried with you and they, they sort of moaned and they, they, they yelled. And, and it was a very public thing. And, and, and so in this world, he goes through that grieving process. He publicly mourns the death of his wife. Um, but then he has to take care of these funeral arrangements now. He needs to make the arrangements for Sarah's burial. So today I'm going to walk through Abraham's struggles to find a tomb for Sarah. I'm going to share a few thoughts on death, particularly how we in the 21st century American context struggle to engage with the reality of death. And then I'm going to suggest a few ways that you can sort of meditate on your own impending death. And I think if you can actually do that and go through this fact and meditate on, on the, your impending death in a thoughtful and spirit-filled way, um, the result is an exercise that will draw you closer to God, and it's something that will result in a really tangible love of your neighbor. And so today's sermon is Abraham's struggles, our culture struggles, and then ways you can meditate um, in a Christian way on your impending demise um, that will alleviate the struggles for yourself and for others in your life. So that's our very dark, but I think very hopeful um, path that we're going to walk in our text today. So first, let's go through our reading. At first glance, our reading appears to highlight a very polite group of Hittites. They continue to offer Abraham a number of choice real estate opportunities for him to bury Sarah. So here's that portion of text. Abraham rose up uh, from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you this his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, that seems polite at first, but there's actually something else going on in this reading, something that I'm going to sort of give you the cultural context here. Because there's this weird power dynamic at play, and it's worth pointing out. Remember, Abraham is one of the richest and most well-off people in the ancient world. Livestock, servants, money. He is rolling in it. And Abraham is so powerful, you'll remember a few chapters back that when some kings from Mesopotamia came into the area to conquer it, Abraham himself was able to put together an army. He put together a fighting force. And so if you're an ancient city like Hebron, and one of these wealthy, powerful men sets up shop right outside your city, you start to get a little nervous. Because Abraham probably does have the capacity between his wealth and his uh, sort of massive entourage and his servants, he probably has something like the ability to either like militarily conquer the city or he has the ability to sort of come in, set up shop, use his money to take over the city politically because he's just that wealthy. And so when, when Abraham walks into Hebron, what do the, the, the people say? They say, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. That's, that's a compliment, but it's also a way for them to say, you are a big stinking deal. And so um, they, they compliment him that, that way because the reality is the city of Hebron is nervous. They don't want Abraham around. 
He's so powerful, he's dangerous. And so what do they say? You're welcome to use one of our tombs, but we don't want you really buying any real estate. That's the subtext here. We don't want you to stick around. We don't want you to have a place where you're going to come back from time and time again. We don't want you to start buying up our land and setting up shop and running us out of town. You're big. You're strong. You're a danger to our city. Who knows? You buy one track of land, then you buy another, and then you buy another. By the end of the day, you own the whole city. But they're missing the point that Abraham actually doesn't care. He doesn't really care about Hebron specifically. He just needs a place to bury his wife. He doesn't want to use someone else's tomb. He wants to buy a tomb, and he wants to buy some land, and he wants to have some acreage for a family graveyard. And so he says, hey, listen, find me Ephron, the son of Zohar. I'd like to make him an offer on a portion of his land. And so Ephron happens to be in the crowd that day. A crowd has gathered, a bunch of witnesses here. And so Ephron steps forward, and he says, uh, what What does he say to to Abraham? He says, hey, listen, this tomb, just, just take it. Take it for free. Um, I, we, don't, we don't need to bring incompetent to this. Just bury your dead here. And, and part of what that means is it's an act of, of, of uh, this guy, Ephron, who's trying to say, you know, take this gift. Because if you take this gift, then you kind of owe me one later. And uh, frankly, I, I don't want you to, to, to move in either, but I would really like to have a favor from you, Mr. Powerful Man. Um, so Ephron is, is trying again. He's, he's trying to do what the community wants him to do. He's trying to say, do not move into our village, Abraham. Do not move into our little city. We, we don't want you here. And so if Ephron can say, hey, you know, just take it for free, then there's no paperwork involved. There's no, um, there's no ownership of the land. He can just use the tomb. And so this looks like a free act of charity, but it's another way of keeping Abraham at arm's length. They do not want Abraham and his power moving into the neighborhood. But Abraham insists, right? This is, this is, notice all the times he's bowing politely in our reading. And he doubles down. He says, no, I insist. I want to buy this land. Give me your price. And Ephraim says, it's all yours for the low, low price of 400 shekels. Now, we don't deal in shekels, but I'm going to tell you that we have other real estate transactions in the Old Testament and um, for a field and a tomb like this, um, 400 shekels is a lot of money. Either the real estate market in Hebron is really hot right now, or the flip side of that is true. They're trying to gouge Abraham. They're trying to poke him and make him go away. They're saying, okay, well, you know, what's 400 shekels between you and me, right? Um, and, and that's really, again, this is their third attempt to say, look, we, we're trying to get you not to buy this land, so, you know, here's my house. I'm going to offer it to you for like a bajillion dollars or something. And, and, and there's a crowd there. They all witness. They all witness this offer to 400 shekels. And so Abraham says, okay. And he weighs out 400 shekels and he pays this over the top price because he really, really wants to bury his wife. So even though they're giving him the business, even though they, they, they have the suspicion of him, Abraham is buying the tomb anyway. Um, And so in the sight of all the men, he gives him the money. Um, Ephron gives him the field. I guess he's a lot richer now than he probably expected to be at the beginning of that day. Um, And this is a remarkable story for two reasons, I think. Again, first, Abraham is a nomad. He travels for a living. He doesn't set up shop anywhere for very long. But he now owns a piece of real estate. The nomad owns property. And where does he own property? 
um, in the land that God had promised him. And so, so what he's saying is, look, I'm going to purchase a family graveyard in an area that God has promised me. I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow or the next day because I am a nomad. But I do know that God promised me this land. And so I'm going to buy a piece of land in this land to bury my ancestors in because I trust God and his promise. So, so again, Abraham abandons his temporarily nomadic lifestyle to buy a piece of land, not just for Sarah, right, but for him and for his descendants. He's got a family graveyard in the area that God had promised him. And so this isn't just sort of let me buy a grave for my wife and my family. It's an act of trust in God because God promised him this land and he said, okay, well, you promised my descendants this land. I'm going to buy the graveyard here. Um, and that's the second thing, um, that he trusts God enough to end his nomadic lifestyle temporarily to buy some real estate, but he also trusts God to buy um, the, the graveyard for his family. Like we just said a second ago, right, um, that, that the way this setup is, he's got this lot, he's got this land, and um, he's now saying, I just don't think I need to buy a graveyard for me and my, my wife. I'm going to have it here for my sons, and their wives, and my grandsons, and their wives. And sure enough, it, as we go through the book of Genesis, this particular location becomes so important um, that the patriarchs will continue to return to Hebron to bury their family for the rest of this book. And you'll remember, it's a far cry, right? A few chapters back, a few chapters back, there was a question of whether God would be faithful in his promise to give Abraham a son at all. But now, Abraham's not just thinking about his son Isaac. He's thinking about his grandkids and his great-grandkids and making an investment into a big future that God had promised him. So this is really a story not just about buying a tomb. It's a story about Abraham's faith, his faith in God's promises, even in his own old age, even when he is grieving the loss of his wife, even when his own son is not married yet. Um, and so if you've ever had to go through the difficult task of executing a will or handling an estate, in today's reading, I hope you find a kindred spirit in Abraham. So let me shift gears a little bit. I want to look at our own culture's struggle with death. I think it's remarkable that Abraham had the foresight to look ahead and to plan for his own death, but also plan for his family's death in advance. He has set up a tomb and a graveyard for him and his progeny. And something that the COVID pandemic has done for a lot of us in America over the past six months has been to put death on the forefront of our minds. And that's something that it just hasn't been that way for decades. If you've attended a funeral at Epiphany before, or if you've heard, um, uh, if you've heard me talk about death in America, some of this may sound familiar to you, but death is the great American taboo. Your, people aren't just allowed to talk about death all of our models on TV are in the prime of their lives. The elderly, um, it went at, at points in their lives, can be often consigned to nursing home care, out of public view. You know, we eat lots of kale, and we pretend to like it and tell people it's good. It's not good. Have you had kale? I fry it in bacon grease, and I'm like, this is edible. That's how good... Uh, anyway, um, that's another sermon for another time. Um, fitness culture has never been more popular. You can now wear yoga pants and golf shirts into the office and have it count as business casual. 
Smoking is considered a chief sin in our world, although not in the church. Smokers, you can come and come to church, please. And um, if you really care about your body, then what do you need to get at your office nowadays? You need to get a standing desk because sitting is as bad as smoking. So you need to stand at your desk for half the work day. The beauty industry continues to grow exponentially, and people are really into essential oils. Um, we want to look young and feel young and dress young, and if we can't do that, then we want to at least be perceived as young at heart. When it comes to not thinking about death, um, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what it means to live in America in the year 2020. And so it's no wonder that the pandemic has us all feel like we're, we're, our screws are loose, like we're falling apart. The threat of death has broken through our gym memberships and our dress shopping and kale eating. And I won't specifically, you know, I'm not speaking for you, but I mean, I can't fit in my yoga pants anymore because I've gained so much weight. That's a joke, guys. Come on, I don't wear yoga pants. Bothered me you didn't laugh at that. Okay. Um, and so, uh, yes, the pandemic has us falling apart. And there's a pop singer named Lana Del Rey um, who was interviewed last month. And Lana Del Rey, you probably don't know her, but she's a musician who's known for being a little bit more thoughtful and philosophical than your average pop diva. And she said this in Interview Magazine. She said this, I think there's been an existential panic for a long time but people haven't been paying attention to it because they've been too busy buying shoes. And shoes are cute. I love shoes. But now that you can't go shopping, you have to look at your partner and be like, I've lived with you for 20 years, but do I even know you? You realize maybe you're only ever allowed yourself to scratch the surface of yourself because if you went any deeper, you might have a mild meltdown for no reason, just out of the blue, and no amount of talking could explain why. But I was right to ask, why are we here? Where do we come from? What are we doing? What happens if this insane, crazy sci-fi crisis happens and then you're stuck with yourself and you're stuck with your partner who doesn't pay attention to you? I'm not saying it's more relevant than ever, but my concern for myself, the country, the world, I knew we weren't prepared for something like this mentally. I also think it's a really good thing that we've gotten to this point where we have to bump up against ourselves because it's not going to be the same when the Beverly Center reopens. I think Lana Del Rey is onto something because outside the church, who can you talk to about death? I mean, you can't really talk about it with friends over a beer. You know, hey guys, you know, what do you think happens when you die? You know, it's kind of a conversation buzzkill. And if you can't shimmy over, you can't really shimmy over to the water cooler at work. I mean, work your way into the conversation about last night's football game by saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm working on my will because I'm going to die one day. You guys know any good estate attorneys that you can recommend for me? In many families, the topic has to be worked in very delicately. Hi, Mom. So I was thinking about the future. And, um, you know, do you guys have this binder somewhere where you've got your accounts and, you know, your online login passwords so I can, you know, kind of help sort through your estate one day? Is that something we can put together together? It's not an easy conversation to have. And it's not just our culture that gives us the tools to distract us from death. Our culture actively wants us not to think about death. You know, um, people aware of their impending death tend to make terrible consumers in the marketplace. You know, do you remember the great infomercial, the ShamWow? Did anybody buy a ShamWow here? I respect you all better that I don't see any hands up. The ShamWow, right? This infomercial on TV, the, the infamous, it's a sham, it's a towel, it's a ShamWow. You know, it dries things even when it's wet. 
this was 2007. This was 13 years ago. And I don't care how good your towel is, but, you know, as long as we humans are destined to die one day, a shamwow is an unnecessary life feature. And when we think about death, the latest fitness trends don't matter so much. And the, the vivacious new shampoo with the hip packaging seems insufficient for the task of providing meaning or fulfillment in our lives. The Kardashians seem less re relevant. So do BTS and the latest boy bands. But you know what else is less relevant? Uh, the, the cable news anchors and their apocalyptic reports of the daily events. If we're going to die anyway, the crisis of the day has much less urgency. Um, and we're free to maybe change the channel to something less demanding. You know, neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden or any politician is going to help you escape the reality of death. And so the things that this world wants you to focus on, the things that this world says, this is the most important thing that you can think of and focus on and give your time and effort and energy towards, they all lose their gravitas once we put our focus on the bigger picture of why are we here, what is the purpose of life, and what happens after we die. And so something practical you can actually do, a spiritual uh, discipline of sorts, a Christian discipline that you can take on, should you choose, is to think about your own death, right? It's something that you can do. Uh, writing a will, making a provision for your family, leaving a bequest for the mission of the church. These aren't just practicalities in a world where one just doesn't get out alive unless your name is Jesus Christ, um, these are the things that Christians do out of love for their neighbor and out of trust in Jesus himself. It's even in the Book of Common Prayer. In our tradition, in the Anglican tradition, one of the most remarkable things is that it is considered a spiritual discipline um, to get in touch with your pastor, to get in touch with your priest, to send them a note about the Bible passages you want read at your funeral, the hymns that you want sung at your funeral the location of your um, uh, burial plot, the, the nursing home, that, or the, excuse me, the funeral home that has all of your um, wills and arrangements set in it. That's not just sort of a practical thing that you do because uh, you, um, you know, have to do it because maybe you're sick or, or you're well up in years. That's a thing that you do because you trust in God and you trust in the resurrection of the dead. And you want to love your family and love your community well by taking care of some of this death bureaucracy in advance. It's a tangible way to trust in God, to think about our faith um, and, and how this world is not the end. It's a tangible way to love your neighbors. And so for those outside of the Christian family, meditating on death is a truly terrible exercise. As Lana Del Rey said, it's easier and less demanding just to go shoe shopping. But to those inside the Christian faith, we have the opportunity to put the world to shame on this particular issue. Um, the day of our death is not to be dreaded or feared. Um, some of you know um, the author and Anglican J.I. Packer. He recently died. Um, and he said that we should view the day of our death as a date on the calendar of heaven where we and Jesus will have a scheduled meeting and Jesus will not be a second late to that meeting, and we shall see him face to face as a friend and not a stranger. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, because of the forgiveness of sins um, that, that that event purchased, because the mercy of heaven um, exists for undeserving humans below, we of all people can look to the past 
with forgiveness, and the present with hope, and the future with expectation. In Jesus, says St. Paul, death has lost its sting. So we, like Abraham, can prepare for our deaths and the deaths of others with serenity and grace. We can think about death and not have to buy shoes to assuage our existential unease. We can lead the path in getting our wills and our life insurance or our coffins or favorite Bible readings or whatever it is in order beforehand. As my favorite hymn outlines, there's no guilt in life and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me and in us. Because from life's first cry till our final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. Till he returns or calls us home, here in the power of Christ we'll stand. And we may not know the date on the calendar of heaven, dear friends, but we can be prepared for that meeting nonetheless. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.